Welcome back to Banter, a policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. I'm Spencer Moore. And I'm Matt Wyset. And Matt, we have a terrific guest this week. We're joined by AEI's Mortgage Fellow in Poverty Studies, Robert Doerr. And Robert's been in the news recently because it was announced a couple weeks ago that he would take over as the 12th president of the American Enterprise Institute in July of 2019. So we're very excited uh, to have Robert here. Robert, thanks so much for being here. Congratulations on the new role. Thanks for having me. And you officially take over in July, is that correct? That's the plan, July 1. Fantastic. Well, good deal. So we're going to focus our time on your past experience uh, in politics and public policy, get to know a little bit about Robert Doerr, the man, and then we'll talk about the future of AEI and the role of think tanks. So why don't we dive in? Where did you start your career? People think think tank scholar. How did you get to that point? Well, I was... um a public administrator in the social service agencies of New York State. I went in there uh, working for Governor Pataki when I was about 30, and I devoted myself to working on programs concerning low-income New Yorkers and worked my way up to become commissioner by the time his term ended. And then I went to work for Michael Bloomberg in New York City to run the largest uh, local social services agency there. So I was a manager of the various programs that we have in the United States to help struggling Americans, and I believed in work and, and then using various benefit programs to support and reward work and help people move up and out of poverty. And then about five years ago, uh, Arthur Brooks uh, started to say, uh, quite appropriately, that um, our argument on ways to help low-income Americans was strong and should be heard more loudly and more clearly benefits of free markets, the benefits of work, the benefits of personal responsibility. Um, and then a, I wanted someone who knew the details of the programs that exist in the United States uh, to help uh, f- uh, add to that conversation. And so I was recruited to come here, and I've been here for five years, and I've produced a variety of work um, that has been, I guess, uh, well enough received to earn me the promotion. I would say so, yeah. So that's a little bit about Robert Doerr, the professional, and we definitely want to get more into your time in New York. But uh, first, can you just tell us a little bit about Robert Doerr outside of AEI? Well, I have four children. My wife, Sarah, and I live here in Washington. Uh, Our children are all uh, in college or out of college. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I think of myself as a New York City person. Um, uh, My father was from Wisconsin and was a Midwestern Republican who came to Washington in the 1960s and had quite a distinguished career. I played basketball in high school. You know, I, I don't, these personal questions are hard for me. There are lots of details about... Well, why didn't you decide to go into the NBA? Because <laughs> I couldn't jump and I couldn't shoot. I could play defense a little bit, uh, but... Uh, not skills they need in the NBA not, these days, I don't think. Well, I don't... I'm, defense. <laughs> the defense is very important in basketball. You could play UVA basketball, maybe. Yeah. There you go. Help no. us get out I of can't really... Now. Honestly, I can't play any basketball now. I'm too old and too slow and too broken down. But in high school, I played basketball, and then I had a little... As my friends like to say, a cup of coffee on the Princeton basketball team. And I got to know Coach Pete Carrill, who's a legendary coach, and I learned a lot from him uh, about the value of work and uh, dedication and character. And um, so that's a little bit about me. Let's get back to your time in New York. You said you grew up in New York City. Um, You later worked in the Bloomberg administration. You've seen New York City change quite a bit. I wonder, before we get into sort of your career at the Human Resources Administration, can you talk about how New York City has changed and what that's really brought about for the people who live there? 
Oh, New York City is a much different place than it was when I was growing up in the 1970s. Um, my father had gone there to uh, help start an anti-poverty program in a very difficult part of Brooklyn called Bedford-Stuyvesant. And it was a place that um, struggled with bad schools and lots of drugs, bad crime, not much economic activity. Um, and now the city has really a totally different place. It's much more uh, prosperous. It's much more diverse. There are many, many of the influx of immigrants has played a role. We've reformed the welfare system um, and we've improved the schools and we've, we've uh, made some great progress in reducing crime. So I happen to believe that um, this is the result of uh, a philosophy and, and a perspective and, and a series of policies that are very consistent with uh, a philosophy and policies that, that we advocate for at AEI or our collective scholars advocate for. Um, uh, and I come from that background of someone who, who may have begun as a, a, a very uh, uh, sort of big-hearted liberal and then learned that uh, there's a certain reality that you uh, get exposed to that brings um, your mind to be focused on policies like those that were written about by James Q. Wilson or Irving Kristol. And uh, the, the, the city of New York's transformation is in some respects a, a product of that rejection of or willingness to move beyond a kind of um, big government liberalism. And um, I'm proud of that. Can you go into a little more detail about when you went to New York, you were there with Patakias in the state government and then with Bloomberg later in the city, what your main objective was and how you actually went about achieving it? Well, in 1994, uh, the cash assistance caseload, the number of people who were receiving a check in, on, in the welfare system, in New York City alone, a city of 8 million uh, people at the time, was 1.1 million. And by 1994-95, it was pretty clear that whatever we were doing in welfare policy wasn't working. And that's partly led to the, you know, the rhetoric of Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and the re welfare reform of 1996. And that rhetoric and that policy effort was really about transforming our system to be one about employment, about helping people get into jobs as rapidly as possible, and then support them in employment by supplementing wages with various assistance, but always saying that people who receive assistance have a reciprocal responsibility to make some effort, uh, and an effort pretty quickly, to move uh, off of assistance and into employment and earnings. And, you know, when we we put that in place under Mayor Giuliani and Governor Pataki and then with the support of the federal government under Bill Clinton and Speaker Gingrich. Uh, not everyone knew how it was going to work out, um, but it worked out very well. The caseload dropped dramatically. The number of uh, children in poverty went down as well. And the number of people who, were, who had not been working, who were never married mothers, went up by, you know, 15 percentage points. Those are significant gains in the area of helping people who are struggling. And um, that gave me a sense that if you advocate for and put in place and execute on a philosophy or a series of ideas that you believe in, in government, you can make positive change. And uh, so that was the story of the late 90s and, and even through – and Mayor Bloomberg continued that and uh, in the period after Mayor Giuliani left. And so the uh, – you know, I feel very positively about um, 
the fact that uh, getting involved in these issues and pursuing an objective, using evidence and, and empirical research, but also uh, good management policies can lead to positive change. And um, that informs everything I do here at AI as well. So there are some who say, these are mostly on the left, that welfare reform, it might have been successful for the most part, but the number of families who live in extreme poverty actually might have increased a little bit due to the welfare reform of the 1990s. Well, it hasn't. Does the data kind of bear that out? I mean, no. what, where does that argument come from and what, what's the deal? Well, my view is there are people in, in public policy discussions who are uncomfortable with uh, policies concerning struggling Americans that ask them to do something and that they really think that really all we should do is provide assistance and and that's our responsibility. The problem with providing assistance and not asking for responsibility is that um, uh, you never provide enough assistance to help people really flourish and um, people don't really flourish until they achieve the dignity of work and, and employment and a feeling of, of some self-reliance. And so... Um, that kind of mentality, though, does lead people who believe in just provide assistance and, and don't ask for responsibility to look for gaps or weaknesses in what we try to do. But the data doesn't show it. Properly measured, even severe poverty uh, went down in the years after welfare reform. There's, I, I don't want anyone to be really struggling in, in dire straits, and so I will always devote my attention to addressing that. But it didn't get worse. And a strong argument can be made that it actually got significantly better. Um, but again, if you are uncomfortable with um, recognizing that the relationship between the state and the individual should be heavily focused on the individual and not as heavily focused on the state, then you're going to attack all of this. Um, but I believe we start as individuals. We are individuals first. We are not all just wards of the state. And if we focus on that, we're going to have greater human flourishing, greater prosperity, less poverty. And, um, and that's what I'm about. So what do you make of the argument that's becoming more popular now with, without these grants sweeping universal programs like maybe universal basic income, universal job guarantee, that some people will just fall through the cracks and that's unacceptable and hence we need a UBI or something like that? Well, if you organize your policy structure uh, in a government uh, around looking out for the worst possible outcome for the very small minority, um, you, can, you will do things that I think do great damage to the vast majority of people who are recipients. Um, I don't want anyone to fall through the cracks. I happen to believe that in a universal benefit structure, more people will fall, fall through the cracks because people need more than just you know, a, a minimum income. They need the dignity of work. They need the dignity and, and benefits of a social interaction with their community. Um, and some of what we do in insisting on some personal responsibility pushes people to engage in the greater community, which I think is good for them. Um, so I'm not, uh, and again, I, when I was in, in, the, in the state leadership in Albany in the wake of all of this new, more intense uh, some viewed as, as, as strong or punitive policies, I was always looking at the statistics that reflected uh, real deprivation. So uh, severe poverty, poverty, number of people below 50% of the poverty level, food insecurity is another measure we look at. 
and and because uh, I wanted to check myself. And in, in the years after welfare reform implementation in New York State, those numbers got better, not worse. So I'm conscious and worried about people who, quote, fall through the cracks. But I think we also have to set up a policy structure that asks of them and recognizes in them their assets and their potential. Um, uh, the other difference between me and people in, in the sort of the, the more left or more liberal or, or more socialist view is that I really uh, have great confidence in the abilities and strengths of the people uh, I'm trying to serve. One of the great things about the welfare reform story in New York State and around the country um, is that it wasn't the programs or the people that got people jobs. The person that gets a job is the person that gets a job. And people had been told who were on welfare in the past, you're not good enough. You're not educated enough. You're not smart enough. You're not capable enough. And so we won't ask you to step up. And then when we did, in huge numbers, they did go to work and proved that those who didn't have confidence in their capabilities were wrong. And those who recognized the inherent potential and dignity of human beings and Americans uh, were were right, and and that's what I saw, and and I I believe it very strongly. Well said. Well, we're going to take a very quick break. I encourage you to stay with us, and we'll be back with Robert Dore in just a moment. Hi, I'm Nat Malkus, host of the Report Card on the AI Podcast Channel. The Report Card features one-on-one interviews with policymakers, practitioners, and reformers at the center of education policy and practice. Listen to my interview with Governor Bruce Rauner on the Janus Supreme Court decision, or my recent talk with Jenny Radeski, author of the American Academy of Pediatrics Screen Time Guidelines for Children. Check out the report card by subscribing to the AEI podcast channel on your favorite podcast player. And we're back with AEI's Mortgage Fellow in Poverty Studies, Robert Doerr. Robert, we're living in a very, very political world, very polarized here in D.C. and across the country. I wonder if you could speak to the role that you think that a place like AEI and think tanks in general should play in such a political world. Well, I think we have to focus on evidence and empirical studies and and the social science, and we need to be um, clear about our nonpartisan role in evaluating using you know solid research uh, techniques and and skills various public policy issues. So we have to be uh, good at that, and we are good at that. Um, But at the same time, we have to be able to communicate in the public dialogue in a way that uh, is understandable and compelling and that, um, in my judgment, advances the cause of of freedom um, uh, in the United States and around the world. And so uh, I think we have to sort of do both of those things. I think AEI does do both of those things. And my goal at AEI is to is to continue and to be good in both those worlds. Um, I happen to believe in uh, the, the core principles uh, that we have expressed over the years that sort of unite scholars. Remember, we're all different and we're all independent. We don't always agree on the specifics. But we do believe in freedom and we believe in free markets and we believe in free trade around the world. We believe a strong role for America in the world. Um, and we believe all of that combines, when executed correctly, those those values, to lead to outcomes for people that are the most positive. They have the most opportunity to flourish as human beings. And um, I think AI 
plays a really important role in this public dialogue that goes on in the United States right now because we are nonpartisan. We call them as we see them. We're not on anybody's cheerleading squad. Um, but on the other hand, um, uh, we are not afraid to stand up for certain core values that have um, led to um, the success of the United States over its 200-plus year history. Um, and so I'm nonpartisan, but I'm not non-ideological, and um, I'm, I'm interested in research and evidence and scholarship, but I'm also uh, focused that on, the, on the public dialogue and the marketplace of ideas, which is often you know, day to day. So these are partisan polarized times. This is a partisan town, but over your career, you've collaborated with multiple organizations, left and right, and I assume AEI will continue to do so. What are some areas that you you do see some potential consensus on going forward? So I did, uh, since coming to AEI, I did help to organize a partnership with the Brookings Institution on uh, poverty and opportunity, and we wrote a joint report with, uh, with them and with uh, an assorted group of six scholars on the right and six scholars on the left, and we came together. And I definitely believe that in that area of helping increasing economic mobility and opportunity and income and wages... There are ideas that we can agree on and come together on and make progress on. And I think some of those ideas um, happen all the time. We, we had a significant criminal justice reform bill passed in a bipartisan way this year. Um, not well known, but we had a significant child welfare legislation uh, that passed and the president signed this year. So I, I think there are a variety of areas where people can come together. There are some things happening here at AEI that are bipartisan concerning America's role in the world and America's um, uh, uh, sort of foreign and defense position uh, with regard to China and Russia. Um, I think there could be a broad bipartisan consensus on those issues. So I think there's opportunity for that. I don't want to get the idea that that's the only thing I want to devote my attention and energy to because some things we we do have fundamental disagreements on, and we should not be afraid to make sure that um, our side of the argument is well expressed and is, um, is, is, is heard. So let's talk about your new role as AEI president. You're coming off the heels of Arthur Brooks, who served as president for 10 years. Um, I wonder what it is in your grand vision. What do you want to achieve? Where do you want to take the American Enterprise Institute as president? I want our scholars to be the best in their fields. Uh, so I want to both uh, encourage and promote the ones we have to be even better, um, and I also want to recruit uh, new people to AI who can really uh, advance their particular, the study of, in their particular fields. So that's number one. And the other thing is that I think it's very important that, the, that in my role as president that I spend most of my time celebrating their work and promoting their work. You know, there's the old line about think tanks. They write a report and it sits on a shelf and no one reads it. Um, I'm not about that. We should play in all the venues. We should be on podcasts. We should do um, um, blog and write op-eds. We should also travel the country. We should be on college campuses. Um, so I, I think my role is to make sure that we're doing that and raising the resources necessary to uh, support that. 
And so those are the three things I want to do. I want to be good, great research, very effective promotion of that research, not only here in Washington but around the country. And I, I need to go out and, and raise the resources so that we can do the first two. Which audience do you think we need to focus on the most? Because there seems to always be a debate with, within think tanks. Do we have to carry the message out to the public and kind of evangelize and win hearts and minds? Or is it more about talking to policymakers and having them effectuate change without necessarily taking the message to the entire country? Well, one of the great things about AEI, and your listeners should be aware of this, is that I can go upstairs in this building and I can go to every desk of the, of the scholars in this building and I can very quickly find out uh, the, that they have very good relationships with key leaders in their field, in Congress and in the executive branch, and sometimes in state governor's offices. And um, those key relationships, which are often, you know, uh, uh, through email, through phone conversations, through meetings, uh, they're not all formal, are really, really important. So I want to be clear that that relationship, that audience is the most important audience. We, we, that's where we can get the most, pound, most uh, bang for our buck. Um, and I want to encourage that. Uh, I, I, have, I personally have conversations with people in the White House or at HHS all the time, and I believe that's part of my job, to help them with the knowledge that I've earned over the years uh, on how these programs should be run. That's true throughout this building. Now, having said that, um, I do like us communicating our ideas to the broader public. We, we believe in democracy. We believe in the people. And the people are listening. And the people make important decisions about the future of our country. And I'm, you know, like all everybody in this town, I know how to say the following words. Elections have consequences. <laughs> and that's everyone's favorite phrase, but it's true. And so I want us to not participate in partisan elections uh, in any direct way, but I want us to provide the ideas that inform elections so the American people uh, make good decisions. And so I, I don't hesitate from that broader audience, but I recognize that our main audience is this, this direct link, which we've earned over years of work to have this credibility where if you, if you are identified as an AI scholar, you immediately have access to the chairman, to the political appointees, to the, to the long-term civil service leaders in all of these bureaucracies. And you have that access, and that's a valuable thing, and I think our scholars use it well to advance uh, solid research and good ideas. Well said. Well, Robert, we're excited for you. We're excited for AEI. Congratulations on uh, your future new role. We look forward to, uh, to you taking over. Thank you, Spencer. Absolutely. So a passing of the torch here at AEI, and also a passing of the torch here on the Banter Podcast after nearly four years of co-hosting, I'll be stepping aside and Matt will be joined by Max Frost. And Max joined you on Monday for your interview with Michael Rubin. Right. If you haven't listened to that yet, it's on the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution. Very interesting topic. And Michael Rubin, for those who don't know, actually has a bounty on him from the president of Turkey, Erdogan, which we did not get into in the episode, but he is the AEI's version of the most interesting man in the world. So we encourage you to listen to it. Yeah, definitely check that out. And I wish Matt and Max the best of luck with the Banter Podcast. We can keep this thing going to 350 more episodes. So good luck. Thank you for handing it over. We're looking forward to it. 
Absolutely. And as always, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, I encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. And while you're there, leave the podcast a five-star rating. Banter will be back next week with a new episode. But until then, for Robert Doerr and Matt Weinset, this is Spencer Moore signing off. <laughs>